Hi everyone, this is Susan Poisner, host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show. Are you an ISA certified arborist or master gardener who needs to claim continuing education credits to maintain your certification? Or are you a person who is always keen to learn more about trees? Either way, check out OrchardPeople.com's Tree Quiz app, where you can listen to past episodes, take quizzes on show content, and apply for continuing education credits. Learn more at OrchardPeople.com slash app. That's OrchardPeople.com slash app, A-P-P. Enjoy it, and enjoy today's show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. It's the 31st of October. The harvest season is coming to an end. The dark, cold winter is on its way. And according to ancient Celtic traditions, at this time of year, the dead return to the world as ghosts. (laughs) To protect their homes, the ancient Celts put food and wine at their doorstops, to stop the hungry spirits from haunting their homes and raiding their pantries. And, of course, they wore masks to trick the ghosts into thinking that they too are members of the undead. Well, 2,000 years later, we still celebrate Halloween. And you know what? The costumes are now probably from Walmart. Instead of food at our doorsteps, we give out candy produced by multinational corporations. And what about bobbing for apples? Does anybody do that anymore? Well, if they do, lots of families would choose Honeycrisp apples for their apple bobbing fun. Honeycrisp is a very popular cultivar and often more expensive than other common apples. Why? Well, that's because Honeycrisp apples are actually quite difficult to grow and they can be even harder to store after harvest. So that's what we're going to talk about on this Halloween show today. My guest on the show is Dr. Randy Beaudry, a professor at Michigan State University and an expert in developing storage protocols for apples. 
He's also a specialist in Honeycrisp. But before we dive into the show, I would love to hear your experiences. Do you grow Honeycrisp apples? Have you had challenges growing them or storing them? Do you find them easy to grow? And what are your secrets for storing all your homegrown apples, whether they're Honeycrisp or another cultivar? Send your emails in during the live show to instudio101 at gmail.com. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. And you can also send in your questions to Randy about anything we're talking about during the show. Now, if you do send us an email, you're also eligible to win a copy of a very beautiful book called The Joy of Keeping a Root Cellar, Canning, Freezing, Drying, Smoking, and Preserving the Harvest by Jennifer McGacy. So if you want to win, send us an email with your question, your comment, or even just to say hi, and we'll put you in the draw at the end of the show. Instudio101 at gmail.com. That's the email. In the meantime, let's talk about apple storage and the challenges of growing Honeycrisp apples. Dr. Randy, Dr. Randy Baudry is on the line. Randy, thank you for coming on the show today. Ah, Susan, it's my pleasure. <laughs> Happy Halloween. What are you doing for Halloween? Well, mostly I'm going to be feeding some ghosts, goblins, witches, a few pumpkins, and maybe the occasional apple. Tonight. Okay, and are you going to dress up perhaps as a Honeycrisp apple tonight? <laughs> You know, the very first costume that I ever wore was an apple with a worm in it. So my arms were in green socks as a worm, and the rest of me was an apple. I, I'm not planning on putting on anything tonight. Now, that's very interesting. And how old were you at the time that you wore the apple costume? I was in college. Okay, okay, that are. makes sense now. So let's <laughs> let's talk uh, briefly about Honeycrisp apples. They really have become very popular, haven't they, in recent years? Yeah, they have. Uh, Honeycrisp one of the most rapidly growing apples, I guess I would say, in terms of the number of acres being planted uh, in the United States, and it's beginning to become a bit of a worldwide phenomenon. I know that from my perspective, working with uh, home orchardists, community orchardists, uh, arborists, and Honeycrisp is probably the go-to apple tree to buy and plant because you know that your client or your community is going to love the apples. The problem is I know that people have faced very big challenges with Honeycrisp. Why is it so hard to grow? Well, it's it's almost as if a Honeycrisp wanted to tease us with this fruit, you know. <laughs> the fruit variety is difficult to grow. It, it goes through seasons where it produces an abundance of fruit, so an overabundance of fruit. And then the next year it may have no fruit or very few fruit. And so as a result, the, the fruit that remain on the tree get very large and they have these disorders that are common for very large fruit and then the next year you might have very small fruit and when you have lots of small fruit they don't ripen normally so they might be later to ripen or not ripen properly at all so it's a peculiar tree in that regard and just kind of difficult to grow overall so it has a tendency to stop growing on you so once it starts to produce fruit it just says okay that's enough i'm not going to get any larger and then it just produces the fruit and doesn't change in size and so for our commercial growers, that's a big issue. They need to have it fill the space so that it intercepts enough light and makes enough fruit so that they can make their, you know, profit. I mean, they're a business after all. So, wow, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And even for, so even for home growers or community growers or small orchardists, I mean, you talked about the disorders that larger fruit get. What are those disorders? What kind of things will we see with Honeycrisp apples? Yeah, so... <laughs> 
It's got a few. Uh, the, the biggest problem is one called bitter pit. And this is some little brown spots that occur, kind of small pits, I guess you could say. And if you uh, on the usually on the base of the fruit near the calyx end, so they they look at this, or the the, profess, the professionals who have evaluated this disorder in the past, um, scientists and others, uh, think of this as a calcium-related disorder. But you know, as you look into the science, it actually turns out that the uh, they, they call it a calcium deficiency, but the concentration of calcium is actually higher in the pit than than the surrounding tissues. And so it's basically an upset in the metabolism of the fruit. And despite the fact that we've been researching this for well over 100 years, nobody knows what causes it. It's just related to calcium, and I think we just about leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, large fruit, for some reason, they have a tendency to develop this disorder. And while it may look off-putting uh, doesn't really affect the flavor. The, the pits are not really there. <laughs> so, so it's uh, okay, but it's just uh, uh, unsightly. Interesting. So, um, yeah, bitter pit. So you wouldn't really, whether you're growing at home, whether you're growing um, in an orchard, it's not something that's very desirable, but especially if you want to store the fruit, how does oh, that no, make yeah. things different? Yeah, if you try to store a fruit that has bitter pit, because that tissue has died uh, like I say these are little brown pits that occur so if you, that tissue has died so now it's susceptible to decay organisms and so then the next phase of uh, degeneration or degradation takes place and so you go from small pits that are on the base of the fruit now to the development of decay and so that really does spoil the fruit yeah so um, for long-term storage uh, bitter pit is definitely a no-no and anything that has pit on it or bitter pit on it um, is usually thrown out. So if we don't throw it out in the orchard, I've seen orchards where 50%, 60% of the fruit are just left on the ground because they have bitter pit. So if those fruit are going to go into storage, uh, they don't want to have any pit uh, in storage. And so um, they try to select for them at harvest time. And then when they come out of storage, if more uh, bitter pit is formed, then those fruit are also culled out and thrown away. Wow. Yeah, we've developed it in commercial orchards. We've developed very machinery that actually looks into the fruit as well as at the surface of the fruit and determines whether or not these defects exist. But bitter pit is uh, one of the biggest um, disorder for honeycrisp. And we haven't talked about sunscald, but that's another one for um, those large <laughs> honeycrisp fruits. Well, for <laughs> bitter pit, so for bitter pit, like as uh, I can picture it inside my head, and you, you don't necessarily know until you slice open the apple. Is that not the case? Yeah, in some cases. You're exactly right, Susan. So what happens is uh, you'll have some bitter pit forming on the inside of the fruit, and it usually forms about an eighth of an inch to maybe as much as a quarter of an inch inside the fruit. And you can see small depressions on the surface, but it doesn't look um, uh, like a a disorder or disease. But when you cut the fruit, you'll begin to see those marks. And if you're going to put that into a pie, for instance, or, or serve it up as a slice, definitely unsightly. Hmm. Interesting. And the other question is, if, for instance, a couple of apples slip into the bunch in storage, whether you're storing in your basement or in professional um, storage, will it will it spread to the other fruit? Um, yeah, this is a question asked, believe it or not, by scientists over 100 years ago. And the tests were done. And yeah, no, it does not spread from one fruit to another. It's simply a, a, a disorder that's uh, 
predestined, so to speak, uh, to occur on an apple fruit. So okay. at the time of harvest, if you let that fruit go to the ripening, it either will or will not develop bitter pit, but it's not affected by adjacent fruit. Okay, that's good. Now, yeah. uh, you mentioned sunscald. I want to talk about that as well. I just We got an email from a listener, Chris. I'm not uh-huh. sure where Chris is emailing from. He says, hi, Susan. Very interesting show. This is apple season, and this indeed is apple season. Thank you, Chris, for that email. Um, yeah, so the other problem you were saying, that's sunscald, correct? That's correct, yeah. And um, the old-fashioned apple trees, um, if you can find an orchard that has old-fashioned apple trees, treasure it and take pictures because they're, they're disappearing. But those old trees with a large central trunk and a big umbrella kind of shape to the tree are rapidly disappearing and being replaced by what we call um, oh, sort of fruiting walls. Uh, and this is really driven in part by Honeycrisp itself because of the high value. But basically, planes of fruit in the orchard that we grow the fruit on. So they grow apple trees now on trellis wire, much like a grape. And because of that, there's much more exposure of the fruit to the sun. So if you can think of an espalier tree that you might put on the side of your house, you know, you think how much sun that tree gets. Well, the old days, you know, all of that canopy would shade the fruit and you wouldn't get sunburn. But on the modern, uh, I guess, production systems and then modern varieties like Honeycrisp, yeah, uh, the two things together, the sensitive variety that the Honeycrisp is and then the greater exposure to sunlight that we get in modern production canopies, um, yeah, we get a lot more um, disorders like sun scald. Now, so it's does, partly high temperature mm-hmm. and it's partly high sunlight, so ultraviolet rays and that sort of thing. And that would affect the trunk of the tree um, causing wounds or would it actually no, affect it causes, the fruit? No, it causes huge brown spots on the fruit surface actually, oh. so that it can be debilitating and you don't necessarily see it at harvest. At harvest you might look at a fruit and if you look at it closely you'll see kind of a slight off color on the exposed red side of the fruit, but you put it in the storage and pull it out months later and you've got a large dead area on the surface of the honeycrisp fruit. Uh, honeycrisp is extremely sensitive to very high light uh, and it's one of the difficulties they have with growing this variety in high light areas like uh, western United States. So what uh, is... Definitely a Midwest variety. It is a Midwest, that's what I was going to ask. What is the best location if you do want, if you're desperate to grow honeycrisp, how do you hedge your bets? Like where are the better places in North America to grow it? I would say a climate like ours, a temperate climate, you can get very high quality out west for sure. Uh, but they have to use measures like coating the fruit with uh, certain uh, kind of like a clay-type materials. Uh, it's called kaolinite clay. Anyway, so you can you can do things to allow your, to grow the fruit in those kind of um, more challenging climates, I guess I would say. But if I were to grow Honeycrisp, the best places to grow it, Northern Wisconsin, Minnesota, northern Michigan, uh, in the northern tier of states, Nova Scotia, Maine, northern New York, yeah, those cooler areas. What happens is um, Honeycrisp is an early ripening variety for us, so it's like mid-September. That's after some of the very early varieties, but among the high-quality varieties, that's early. But in mid-September, we still don't have the cool nights to get the the good coloration. But in those higher um, latitude places, then we find that they don't ripen until the end of September, so about um, 1st of October. And in those areas, they get the highlight and then the, the cool nights uh, as well, and those cool nights trigger the uh, formation of uh, the anthocyanins to give you a beautiful red fruit. 
Um, so that's where I would say are the probably the best areas to grow Honeycrisp in the U.S. I might get flack from my colleagues at <laughs> the experiment stations <laughs> yeah. around the U.S., but uh, but that based on the quality of the fruit, that's what I would say. Uh, interesting. We got an email from John. Not sure. Oh, John is in Ontario, actually. Okay. So he writes something interesting, and I wonder if you know this particular cultivar. He says, hi, Susan. The Heritage Apple Winter Banana, you know, the Winter Banana Apple, is a variety that keeps very well. We often pick ours in late November and, and have been able to keep them in the refrigerator crisper until late February. Something to be said about heritage varieties. That's interesting. Have you heard of the Winter Banana Apple? I know it's one of the more quirky uh, heirloom cultivars. Is that something you've encountered at all? Uh, you know, I'm not. I'm familiar with the winter banana, but mostly through little literature. But not. I don't think I've ever tasted a winter. I banana. know. I would love to taste it, John. If you hear our question, tell us. Email us back and tell us if it actually tastes like banana, the winter banana <laughs> apple. You know, <laughs> Susan, I do a lot of work on aroma biology in apples, and so far I've never found one, an apple that makes the characteristic banana flavor. So this would be very interesting. That would be super <laughs> interesting. We've got another question from Brian. Hi, listening from Reno, Nevada. What are apples coated with in the supermarkets? Thank you. I have always wondered that. Thank you, Brian, for asking that question. Do you know the answer? Is this part of of the magic? We're going to talk in the second part of the show about the magic you do to keep the apples, but is coating them part of the issue? Yeah, it is. Uh, It's not part of the issue, but it's part of what we do here in the United States. And it's interesting, different places in the world uh, manage their apples differently. The United States, for whatever reason, has um, focused on, become fascinated by shiny apples. don't know how that happened, maybe through Disney. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But what's happened is uh, we expect apples to be shiny. Apples are normally kind of dull, actually, until you shine them, you know. So you can take an apple fruit, they produce their own waxes, and if you rub them on your pant leg or your shirt sleeve, you can get them to a very nice high polish. Well, the consumer doesn't really know to do that, I think, anymore. And so what has happened is uh, the producers of the apples have stepped in, and then they use certain waxes. There are two different waxes that they're primarily used. And these waxes give that sheen to the apple without having to buff it. So they do all of that in the packing line, and then you see a bright, shiny apple in the grocery store. So these these waxes, though, like what what are they made out of? Is this like an an edible... Oh, Natural. you're going to put me in a corner here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, here it goes. This is what they're made of. So one is a wax, actually. It comes from a palm tree. It's our Carno- carnauba wax, it's called. So we take the wax off a palm tree, and it's a better wax, I guess you would say, a more stable wax. And we, we strip the waxes off of the apple, and then we put this carnauba wax on. And that carnauba wax is a nice, shiny wax, and it doesn't dull. And then the other material that we put on is shellac, believe it or not. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know. I'm telling you. I'm sorry. That this is between us and the, the listeners. So the listeners will all keep <laughs> it quiet, right, listeners? Are we going to say anything? Yeah, okay, well, so I'm tell your, us about I mean, the shellac. Uh, I'm your apple expert so, for yeah. the day. So, uh, yeah, so this is a, it's an excretion of this insect called the lac bug, believe it or not. And they, this is a huge industry in India. Uh, and other places, but in India as well, and primarily. And so what they do is they go through the shrubs that the lac bug is on, and it's like a 
oh, it's a scale insect, I believe. And then they collect the white exudate, which is a wax that um, that the bug makes, and then they take that wax, and it's reduced and made into a wax that they put on fruit and other things. Um, yeah, shellac. All that it's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? All that work, and it sounds like it's not that has plays no role in preserving the fruit. It's just to satisfy our shiny apple craving. I yeah, guess, you know, some people will claim no. It's a it's a fair point to make. Some people will claim that it reduces moisture loss, and it might do a little bit. Uh, might modify the atmosphere inside the fruit a little bit. I really kind of doubt it. Um, but yeah, most it's about keeping it shiny. Yep. And, and especially mm-hmm. in a situation where an apple fruit goes from like a cool environment to a slightly warmer environment to a cooler environment. And so where you normally would have condensation um, causing off color of the waxes, those waxes are pretty stable and they don't, um, they don't develop like a dullness. And and do do you know if you wash them with soap, will the wax come off? Because I doubt it somehow. Uh, you're exactly right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're eating that wax stuff. Off. But but uh-huh. they're inert. They're very inert uh, materials. Very stable. So they're not a, a risk of any sort. So far as I know, to any kind of uh, in, in any way for human health. And if you don't want the wax, then grow your own fruit tree. And that's why people so, are yeah. listening to this radio show and they go to my website, orchardpeople.com, because we like to grow our own. That's really fun. So let's see. We've got also a message here from Hank, and Hank is talking about Honeycrisp and storing them. And he says, they store very well for me in our root cellar. He said, we ate them into the spring last year. They keep what flavor they do have for a long while and stay crunchy long after the flavors decline. Okay, so the flavor does decline. The last few were a bit like eating celery, which is nice enough when the garden is still covered in snow. So he says, not the best flavored apple, but certainly a good keeper. That's his perspective. But but that's an interesting point, actually, uh, Randy, because what we're going to talk about in the second part of the show is how you've managed to keep the apples and the flavor. Is that correct? That's the whole point of learning to, you know, finding ways to store these apples, that they won't change in storage. Yeah, you have it exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, Honeycrisp is an interesting apple for that particular reason. Yeah, it's insensitive to temperature in terms of softening. It always remains crisp. It's, as far as I know, the only commercial ap- apple produced now or ever that has had this texture. It's very, very unusual. So, it never, ever softens. It eventually will get mealy. Um, that's an issue with almost every apple variety when they get very, very old. Um, but in this case, the Honeycrisp will stay crispy even at the higher temperatures of a root cellar, so 50 degrees um, Fahrenheit. Yeah. Interesting. We'll do one more a message here. This is uh, from Ben uh, from Southern Virginia. <laughs> so Ben says, if I ever got any to store, I might have some tips. I planted two Honeycrisp trees three years ago before I knew any better. They hate the heat in Southern Virginia Zone 7A. Any apples they produce quickly perish slash never come to fruition. I've been grafting them over with Southern varieties, but it's still one of the apples. But, he says, it's still one of the apples that got me interested in growing my own, so I owe them something. And then he (laughs) says, uh, by the way, I do no spray and no treatments of any kind on them. 
They get Garrett juice and Epsom salts monthly, and that's it. When I got this email, I looked up Garrett juice, G-A-R-R-E-T-T, Garrett juice. Is that something you've heard of, or is that like... No, I don't know about it. Yeah, so it's an interesting organic uh, mixture, and you get the recipe online, so people may want to look that up. So that's kind of interesting. That's from Ben. So, okay, well, why don't we do this? Let's... um, let us go and hear a word from our sponsors. How about that? Randy, you'll, you're okay staying on the line for a couple of minutes? Absolutely. Great. And we're going to talk about different storage solutions, whether it's for Honeycrisp or other apples. So Perfect. for the listeners, please do send your questions and your stories. Do you store fruit over the winter? What is your secret to keeping it fresh? Send your email to instudio101 at gmail.com. And remember to tell us your first name and the city you're writing from. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101, where we talk about fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and arboriculture. I'm Susan Poisner from orchardpeople.com, and we'll be back after this short break. If you're an arborist, master gardener, or landscaper who's keen to learn fruit tree care skills, check out orchardpeople.com's Certificate in Beginner Fruit Tree Care. Not only does our intensive online training give you the skills you need, but we'll also give you a certificate that you can use to claim continuing education credits from the International Society of Arboriculture and from other professional bodies. Learn more about continuing education at orchardpeople.com by visiting orchardpeople.com slash workshops. Looking for a quick, easy-to-apply, and all-natural fertilizer to use in your vegetable and flower gardens or for your fruit trees? Why not work with Mother Nature? Layer hand manure is a terrific fertilizer, and this is what Actisol does by transforming the manure from their egg farms into an efficient fertilizer. The manure is dried using a technology that harnesses the heat given off by the hands. No other heat source is needed. Actisol is easy to use, safe for the environment, children, and pets. You can purchase Actisol products at your local garden center or order in bulk. For more information, visit www.acti-sol.ca. Actisol, the mother hen fertilizer. If you want your fruit trees to live a long and healthy and productive life, it's essential that you water them properly when they're young. You need to water slowly and deeply so the moisture seeps into your young tree's expanding root system. That sounds easy enough, but you'd be surprised at how often the water you provide for your trees just rolls away, leaving its young roots high and dry. That's why we at TreePans.com have worked with orchards to develop a product that ensures all the water gets to your tree's root system. Our expandable tree pans funnel rain or irrigation water to the drip line of your young trees. Additionally, tree pans eliminate weed growth under the tree canopy, as well as protect your trees from mowers, tractors, and weed whips. 
Tree pans are used in orchards, city parks, and in residential yards. And once your young tree is established, you can move your tree pans to another young tree. Learn more about tree pans at treepans.com. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show. Susan Poisner. You're listening to the not very scary Halloween episode of the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. In this show, we talk about fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and arboriculture. In today's episode, we're talking about Honeycrisp apples and storing your harvest over the winter. So now, if you grow fruit trees, this is a really important topic. After all, you want to ensure that you have homegrown fruit throughout the year and not just at harvest time. But it's also interesting for consumers who don't grow their own fruit. How is our fruit kept fresh during the winter season? Are toxic chemicals used to preserve the fruit we buy in the supermarket? Well, today my guest is Dr. Randy Beaudry, a professor at Michigan State University and an expert in developing storage protocols for apples. If you have a question for him or a comment, just send your email to instudio101 at gmail.com and remember to include your first name and the city you're writing from. And if you write in, you're also going to be eligible to win a copy of Jennifer Magisi's book, The Joy of Keeping a Root Cellar. Canning, freezing, drying, smoking, and preserving the harvest. It's a beautiful looking book. So, Randy, in the first part of the show, we chatted about the general challenges about storing honeycrisp apple or growing honeycrisp apples. Now, you've been faced with the problem of figuring out how to actually store these apples properly. Can you tell me a little bit what is the problem with storage and what is the solution that you found? Sure. Honeycrisp apples has. Uh, apple variety has more problems than I think any other variety I've ever worked with. So, I mean, my career only goes back 27 years, but at the same time, I've worked with a number of varieties, and nothing quite meets the standard set by Honeycrisp. So they have a temperature sensitivity. So at low temperatures that we normally would store apples, um, so about 0 degrees Celsius or 32 degrees Fahrenheit, it's absolute death for a Honeycrisp apple. So that would cause that fruit to develop lesions on the surface that look like ribbon, ri- uh, rivers of brown on the surface. It's a disorder called super, uh, super uh, not sorry, a soft scald or ribbon scald. And then it may also cause an internal breakdown called soggy breakdown. So there's rivers of brown on the inside of the fruit. Hmm. And one does not necessarily happen with the other. You might have fruit that look absolutely perfect on the outside and cut into that fruit, and it's brown on the inside and inedible. Hmm. So that's a chilling-related disorder that is common for Honeycrisp. And a couple other varieties are sensitive to low temperatures like Macintosh and Jonathan, but 
nothing like Honeycrisp. So, okay, so your job, you know, developing these storage protocols is to say, okay, here's the harvest. I want this harvest to stay good for how many months? Like how many months realistically can you keep these apples for, whether it's Honeycrisp or Macintosh or another cultivar? Yeah, every apple variety has its own kind of optimum. A Honeycrisp apple we could keep for about, I would say, eight months probably if we do everything right. Uh, when we first started storing Honeycrisp, probably no more than three or four months would be mm. the outside in, in my mind. Um, but we're better at it now. Uh, but every variety is different. So Macintosh, I, I personally wouldn't like to see a Macintosh stored longer than, say, four to six months, depending mm. on how good you were at, at that um, activity. Uh, something like a Red Delicious, eight to nine months, no problem. A Rome or some other variety like a Fuji could store a year if you wow. uh, really worked at it. So some varieties store a long time. Uh, probably your winter banana you could keep all year if you put you know all the tools into play to try to maintain that uh, fruit, edible fruit. It's interesting you say that about winter banana, and uh, John got back to us, so you and I will ah. now know a little bit more. I was hoping he'd write back. So John says, no, there is no banana flavor in these apples, in the winter banana. That's what you thought. Literature indicates a banana aroma, but John says, I can't detect it. Our tree is very old, probably 80 plus years, and is a great producer. We never spray, and it is very clean with little scab and insect issues. John. Thank you, John, so much for writing that. Okay, so we know it's a good keeper. We know it doesn't taste like bananas. So that's good. Okay, so you're saying that there is a limit as to how many months you can keep an apple, depending on the apple. No, I'm guessing that if you keep an apple too long, it turns to mush. Or is does each one have a different problem? Yeah, that's true. So it'll either turn to mush or turn brown, or you'll have decay set in or the flavor is lost, as was indicated earlier. So there are a number of different ways for the fruit to lose enough quality that you no longer consider it acceptable. So hmm. there are yeah, lots of ways to take the apple apart. So. Lots of ways. Okay. But yeah. your job is to figure out how to keep it good. So mm-hmm. what is involved? Is it just you build big refrigerators and pop them in there? Is that how simple the, the job is? No, it's a little more complicated than that. <laughs> so, but I, can I, would you like me to go through and kind of describe what? Yes, in simple terms, what are the steps? Yeah. So the first step is to harvest the fruit at the right stage of development. So if I harvest a fruit that's too ripe, it won't store well. It might taste great for the first few weeks, but after a while, you'll soon see that it gets tired, loses some of the acid, you know, some of the punch to the flavor. And uh, eventually the aromas begin to change and you get that overripe taste and maybe greasiness associated with the skin. So uh, in this particular case, I say the first step is to harvest them at the right stage. So before you begin to have a strong scent of, you know, a strong aroma that's typical of the variety. So by that time, they've begun to ripen. So if you catch them just before that stage, they're at their maximum storability. They may not look pretty necessarily, but they'll eat well in storage. Hmm. And then the next thing is to store them at the right temperature. So for Honeycrisp, we actually, believe it or not, we take these (laughs) millions of tons of Honeycrisp fruit and they all get held at a higher temperature, in this case about 50 degrees Fahrenheit, for five to seven days. And then we reduce the temperature, not down to zero or 32 Fahrenheit, we reduce it down to about 38 Fahrenheit. Hmm. 
and then we can store them for uh, some extended period of time. But we do this conditioning to prevent them from becoming too sensitive to low temperatures. So that's an amazing step. You think about all of that um, energy and time expended to keep this fruit well. So temperature is the next thing. And then we also have a couple of really cool tools to prevent ripening. So there's a hormone that apples produce. It's a natural, simple hormone. It's called ethylene. Ethylene gas drives ripening in apple fruits. Without ethylene, they will not ripen. It's just as simple as that. So we have two tools that we typically use. One is to reduce the oxygen around the fruit. Ox low oxygen prevents ethylene action, and so then the fruit don't ripen very rapidly, and we can hold them for months before they begin to ripen. And then we have special rooms to apply this atmosphere. Those are called controlled atmosphere storages, and these are very large cold rooms. There are thousands of bushels in these rooms, but uh, on the other end, there can be a few hundred bushels, so there's some small ones out there, too. And then the final tool, a uh, very exciting tool that has been developed within the last 15 or so years, is a, a chemical compound. Um, it's a four-carbon molecule, a lot like butane, like the butane in the lighter. Uh, it's called 1-MCP, 1-methylcyclopropene. And this compound binds to the binding site in the apple where the ethylene normally acts. And so now the ethylene can't act. And so for a period of months, this 1-MCP uh, at vanishingly low levels, like parts per billion or parts per trillion, blocks out the ethylene action, and then slowly the fruit makes new binding sites, and then it becomes sensitive to ethylene again and begins to ripen. So after three or four months, uh, even in air storage, uh, without the controlled atmosphere, the fruit uh, will hold pretty well, and then they begin to ripen normally. Hmm. And in controlled atmosphere storage, if you treat them with MCP, it would be seven or eight months, maybe, before the fruit begin to uh, ripen again on their own. So, so that's uh, it's, a, it's a benefit and a bane, too. We can talk about the negative aspects of it. But, boy, we can hold a fruit at a maximum crunchiness for a, a very long period of time. Amazing. Those three steps, right? Those are the three steps. Yeah. So step number one, harvest at the right time. That makes sense. You know, there's no chemicals involved here. It's all good. Mm -hmm. Temperature, well, that's like you have special rooms and you keep them a certain temperature. That was step two. Now, step three, so you talk about reducing oxygen. So there's no chemical involved in reducing oxygen. Yeah, it's just simple respiratory gas. So you and I breathe it in and breathe it out and, yeah. uh, and breathe out CO2. Yeah. yeah. So so of, of the, the third step, controlling the atmosphere, this, uh, what is it, 1-MCP, is that, is there anything chemical about that? Is that something that people might say, oh, that's not organic, or yeah, what is this putting organic, in our food? true. So your organic people wouldn't want to use it. Okay. Uh, but it's an interesting chemical because um, it is extre extremely safe. So I don't know if you're familiar with the way tests are done, but they could never cause any symptomology of the, in this case, it was a the surrogate is a rat. <laughs> they can never cause any symptomology with a rat, no matter how high the concentration was. Hmm. So it, it appears to be extremely safe, but it is a chemical, and it's not organic. Um, there have been reports of it being found in things like wood smoke, but I'm not so sure how realistic that is. But, um, yeah, so not organic. Not One organic. thing that I, didn't, mm -hmm. yeah. I didn't mention is that carbon dioxide is also used. So the gas that we exhale, CO2, carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. also helps... Um, preserve the fruit, believe it or not. But in the case of Honeycrisp, sadly, Honeycrisp is very sensitive to this 
simple respiratory gas, and it can cause uh, browning on the inside of that fruit as well. So your job has been to walk a tightrope and to create uh, some sort of system for Honeycrisp where this sensitive, sensitive apple will survive and thrive and still be yummy and delicious at the end of the eight months or six months. So what does that involve? Do you sit at your drawing board and create designs for rooms that can have just the right number of like the right temperature, the right gases? How does that look for you? Yeah, so we don't do it quite like that, but what we do do is we take those fruit that we harvest from our commercial co- uh, cooperators and we put them in storages that we have in my laboratory. So I have these storage cabinets, about 32 storage cabinets, and we can modify the atmosphere in those cabinets uh, to whatever we, we desire. And then we attempt to like maximize the storage uh, quality of the apple fruit uh, using various protocols, both before they go into storage and then as they're in the storage. So using chemicals like 1-MCP, but also not using chemicals. Hmm. And so as it turns out, it depends on what you want. Uh, Just about you can find what you need. Uh, So there's been a recent invention, and this is not something for folks at home necessarily, but there's been a recent invention called, um, well, it's called DCA, Dynamic Controlled Atmosphere, And it's kind of based on some work that was done in my laboratory and others many years ago. But there are ways of determining whether the fruit is stressed by those low, low oxygen atmospheres. And so what we've done now with equipment that we have, we can get oxygen levels lower than ever before. And then we can reduce the ripening of the fruit. So this allows us to avoid the use of 1-MCP in some situations. So what we do in my lab is we come up with recipes. So recipes for the organic grower, recipes, typically a large commercial grower, but recipes for the organic grower, uh, recipes for those people who don't want to use controlled atmosphere and just want to use, let's say, MCP, uh, recipes for those who like to use uh, CA and might be comfortable with using an antioxidant, prevent some disorders, so that kind of thing. So we have about eight or ten different variants of recipes that we recommend for our grower community. I like that. I like calling it recipes. It sounds much less scary than protocols. That sounds good to (laughs) me. (laughs) Now, we have an email from Adam in Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan, I think. Now, Adam says, hi, two questions. Are there different strains of Honeycrisp or other apples that have differing susceptibility to bitter pit? That's an interesting question. I wondered about different strains or varieties of of Honeycrisp. His second question is, what are some of the better storing early apples? One book I have suggests Sansa, S-A-N-S-A, a variety introduced in 1986. So let's see. Part one is, are there different types of Honeycrisp? And some so are... the answer to that question is yes. Ah. Yeah, so it turns out that there are some very new uh, Honeycrisp strains. Um, they ripen about, believe it or not, about three weeks earlier than Honeycrisp. So, yeah, so it's, in a way, it's a little bit frightening. I haven't had a chance to store them, but I, I feel... Like, uh, gosh, to take a fruit variety that grows quickly and grows quite large already and then to find a strain um, that grows even more rapidly, I just wonder what uh, Hmm. that means in terms of retention of the texture that we really like. You know, Honeycrisp is known for its texture that doesn't go away. And, yeah, so I haven't haven't had enough experience, but I have some concerns, but not, you know, nothing nothing that would prevent me from buying some and, and eating them. 
Definitely. So, yep, that's that's about it, though. They have some early ripening variants and some uh, bright red color variants. Bright red so ones. So your grower or your uh, consumers out there would should expect to see even more brightly uh, colored. Honeycrisp in the future. Mm, we'll look out and for those. In the and and so Adam's second question is: in, from your knowledge, what are some of the better storing early apples? So he talks about Sansa S A N S A, but I don't know if there's other cultivars that you know of. Yeah. So of the early varieties, gosh, um, I want to say earlier than if you go earlier than Honeycrisp, you'd have the early Honeycrisp variety, and then there's another one called. Sweet Tango, um, that is an amazing apple, actually. Um, it probably is my favorite apple. So it's a, a variety that, like Honeycrisp, came out of the Minnesota breeding program. Uh, it's a beautiful apple. Uh, it's the only apple I've ever heard a grower described as looking like money on the tree. <laughs> so that, it's, it's a difficult apple to grow. Once again, mm-hmm. another difficult apple to grow because it has uh, superficial um issues so large lenticels and sometimes it gets russet but but the flavor of it is amazing so in terms of the very earliest high quality fruit probably that the paula red which is good for a week <laughs> uh, but still is a one of our early high quality fruits and then you fall into the, the era of the zone where honey crisp macintosh jonathan mm-hmm. uh come uh, it, Mac, yeah honey crisp macintosh jonathan yeah probably come all more or less together gala would be there as well. So they're early ripening strains of Gala, but yeah, they, yeah, they're not as early as let's say the the Sweet Tango, which is ripe in the last week of August. Interesting. Um, the um, you, you were talking about the early apples, and I know I know that's not a keeper, but uh, there's Yellow Transparent, which is a really early apple. But it's, I love that. I do love you? It. What it does is it prepares me for this for the fall. Yeah. So on a you know, on a biking trip through, let's say, the pretty parts of Michigan, you can stop at some local farm stand. They've just opened. They have the transparent out there, and you can get a taste of fall early on. Yeah, yeah but I, I understand yeah. that they turn kind of, they get, they, they sort of don't keep very well at all. That's correct. You yeah. want to applesauce yeah, them pretty quickly. Them. Yeah. <laughs> so I've got an email from Janice. We're going to have a commercial break in a minute, but Janice writes, now let's see where she is. Oh, she says, listening from Wilmington, Delaware, have you ever heard of a variety of apple called um, Macowan? I don't know if pr- I've pronounced that right. I've seen oh, it. Macowan. Macowan, yeah. yeah. It seems that this variety is rare. We can't buy them here. Thank you. So Macowan, did I pronounce that correctly this time? Macowan. Yeah, I yeah. think that's right. Yeah. So tell us about it. Do you know about that uh I know about it only a little. It's a, a variety that you can still find in some heritage orchards, so occasionally you'll find it. Um, my best memory of the Macown apple is having a cider made from that apple and only that apple. It was uh, the best apple cider I'd ever had. And mm. there's something to be said about an apple cider that's made from a single variety. You can taste the variety coming through. But it's one of those varieties, the old Macown, that uh, has kind of gone by the wayside for issues associated with storability and handling. Um, some varieties of apples, we can make it, we can get them through the handling chain and sell them for an extended period of time when the grocery stores want them, and others that will fade away because they lack some specific quality characteristic. And maybe the best example I have of that is the Cortland apple. That's an interesting apple, too. That ripens about the time of Red Delicious, maybe a little earlier. 
and it's got a beautiful white flesh. It doesn't brown, and it's a beautiful apple, and it's good uh, when you eat it, and it's one of those nice, tasty fall apples, lots of flavor, but it softens quite quickly, and, and uh, so as a result, it's rarely held for any length of time. And so if you try to get that through a retail outlet, well, you'll have it in the fall, but that's about it. So um, the retailers, especially these big box stores, they like to have you know an apple variety throughout their um, marketing season and yeah so it's, it's moved on its way out just a little too soft maybe a little too large and a couple and a little bit too many too much susceptibility to some post-harvest issues and so it's the a- next few years you'll be hard-pressed to find the Cortland and, and that's still findable but like the like the Macown will fade And that's where, you know, home growers and community growers and small orchardists can come in because we can grow these really interesting cultivars because we don't have to worry about storing them for months and months. So I would say, you know, plant the tree, Janice, if you can. Um, On my website, orchardpeople.com, you can do, uh, you can go to the menu bar where it says books. And I have a list of specialist fruit tree nurseries. And so you can get a tree, uh, you, you download the list, and you can get a tree shipped to you. And I'm sure I've seen Macowan on there. So, uh-huh. yeah, and then email us back and tell us how the fruit is. We want to know. <laughs> so, yes. Okay, well, we're coming up, and it, we're going to hear a word from our sponsors. But, Randy, you'll hold on the line, if that's okay, and we continue Absolutely. to chat. We're going to talk about creative solutions that home growers and others can use to store their harvest. Can we create an inexpensive solution to turn an ordinary garage, for instance, into somewhere to store your homegrown apples? You're listening to the Halloween edition of the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com, and we'll be back in just a moment. My name is Mike McNairn. I'm the manager of Universal Field Supplies. Universal Field Supplies specializes in products that are used by arborists. They're professional quality tools that uh, guys that use them every day need to rely on. So they tend to be higher quality than what's found in big box stores. The Universal Field Supplies product could be used by anybody that has trees and likes to look after trees. We've all been to school for forestry or arboriculture, and we have many years of experience. We would be happy to answer any questions people have and actually ask questions of them and find out exactly what their needs are and determine what product would suit them the best. Don't hesitate to call. Here's how to reach us. Call 1-800-387-4940 or email at info at ufsupplies.com. See you soon. Universal Field Supplies has stores in Mississauga, Ontario, and Port Coquitlam in British Columbia. Learn more at universalfieldsupplies.com. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Wiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes over 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalog, we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. 
We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalog. That's 519-669-1349. Whiffletree Nursery. Call us today. Hi, I'm Mark Cullen with some news about a wonderful lineup of garden supplies and garden tools that will absolutely knock your gardening socks off. They're called Mark's Choice, and they're exclusive to home hardware, 1,100 stores coast to coast to coast. Mark's Choice features great quality products that will not only last years, but in some cases will last a lifetime. Look for my various garden gloves, stainless steel garden tools, stainless steel digging tools, my new garden backhoe, and many, many others. As a matter of fact, there's over 160 different products in the Mark's Choice lineup. I'd love you to try them all, but start by sampling one that appeals to you. Drop by your local home hardware, have a look at the Mark's Choice lineup of tools and garden supplies, including my line of garden soils, and decide for yourself. Great quality lasting quality, and a great gardening experience. That's what I strive for with Mark's Choice. Look for it at Home Hardware. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To get a hold of Susan, send her an email right now in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hi there, I'm Susan Poisner, and that was really spooky, wasn't it? You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, and it's Halloween. And in this show, we're not talking about ghosts, and we're not mingling with monsters or hobnobbing with vampires. Instead, we're talking about the nicer things in life, like fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, and arboriculture. Thanks so much for tuning in. So in today's program, I have been chatting with Dr. Randy Beaudry, a professor at Michigan State University and an expert in developing storage protocols for apples. So we're going to talk about how to adapt a professional fruit storage system that it could, so that it could work in your own garage or your basement or in an outdoor structure. So, Randy, you're talking about the the solutions that you develop are very expensive and high-tech, and they're for big producers. But what if we go back in time? I mean, how helpful is it to just have a cold cellar? Or or what would you suggest to create a really good storage solution for a small grower? Well, uh, that's an interesting question. There are a couple of options, and I think um, maybe the thing you want to think about is starting with the right plant material for putting in your cool storage. So I won't call it a cold storage. We'll call it a cool storage. So cellars, uh, cold cellars can, well, they typically are at earth temperature, which is about 50 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit, but with ventilation can be made cooler. 
Um, so if I were to work with an apple variety like that, I would try to store it in the coolest part of my cold cellar, or um, if you looked at it as like a corner of your garage, the warmest part of your unheated garage, so they wouldn't freeze. Uh, apples actually, because they're alive, uh, they produce their own heat, so a little bit of insulation around the fruit will allow temperatures to build up and vice versa if you have an area that's already warm like a root cellar warm in apple talk <laughs> a little bit of ventilation or near the ventilated area would be its coolest point and you can keep them cooler there uh, so anything you can get to get uh, to get the temperature as low as possible would be uh, critical uh, for the home grower the home store home storer the other thing would be to use varieties that store extremely well um, Depending on where you're growing your fruit, if you're up north, you don't have too many options. A lot of the early ripening fruit or what would be mid-season ripening fruit that are grown in the northern tier of states, they don't store exceedingly long. And the one exception to that is the Honeycrisp that we've been talking about because it never really softens. But if you're fortunate enough to live in, let's say, Ohio or perhaps even southern Michigan, there are a number of varieties that store exceedingly well if you can harvest them in the fall and will do quite well even at slightly elevated temperatures. One of those is called Gold Rush. This came out of the Purdue breeding program and it's a scab resistant variety so you don't have to control uh, the scab on the, uh, which is a pre-harvest um, um, fungal dis, uh, disease. So that variety, does, you might harvest it in mid-October and it won't ripen for another three months even in storage, but when it ripens, it's just one of the most flavorful apples I've ever eaten extremely hard fruit another one coming out of the informal ohio breeding program is called Evercrisp, and that is an ex that's an exquisite apple it's very sweet very crisp and it stays crunchy a long time in storage so that's one that if you didn't have optimal storage conditions could be uh, could be held quite a long time uh, fuji apple is another one that i would consider to be uh, really storable for a long period of time before it would uh, get too soft or, or get mealy so uh, selection and then also whatever you can do to try to get the temperature as close to zero Celsius or 32 Fahrenheit uh, as you can for most of those varieties. And when I say 32 for, for Honeycrisp, once again, 38. Yeah, so essentially, okay, so you've got your cold cellar. You're going to put, uh, you know, just check the temperature down there. But what if the room is a bit warm? Like, can you adopt a room with an air conditioning unit? Can you... Uh, is there anything else you can do to, to adapt your space so that it works? Yeah, you can. Um, there are options, and I've actually worked on some of these options in a project in India recently. It's been kind of fun. Um, but, yeah, you can take a regular air conditioner, and air conditioners, are they have most of the control features on the inside of the air conditioner. So the air conditioner itself can never get lower temperatures than, let's say, 58 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit. That's it. Hmm. But it turns out that every air conditioner manages this by uh, sensing the temperature of a little probe that sits there in the gas stream or the air stream of the air conditioner. And so if you took that little probe, okay, and it's on a little wire, and you pulled that probe, so you took apart the chassis, preferably while this thing was unplugged, and you took apart the chassis and took that probe and put it outside of the air conditioner. Now the air conditioner thinks that it's always 70 degrees Fahrenheit and it wants to reduce the temperature. So that's one way to make an air conditioner work for you that way. So what, what we do in our situation is we actually take a little heater. You could 
use a light bulb if you wanted to. It doesn't matter what, but a little heater to warm up that sensor, uh, and we and that way the sensor stays in the room with the apples and the air conditioner, and and we just heat it up a little bit, and so the air conditioner stays on. And an air conditioner, believe it or not, can get well below freezing, well below freezing. Hmm. So yeah, you could you could do it that way if you wanted to, and then if you had a way of taking like an old thermostat, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And um, and set that thermostat for some low temperature that the thermostat will go to. I don't know some of them like for refrigerators. Maybe those thermostats can be used to you know turn on and off when you're freezing, and just turn the light off. Uh, so so when it gets down, the room gets down to a certain temperature, it just cuts off the electricity to the light, and then suddenly, um, then now that sensor for your air conditioner is seeing the low temperature, not the warmed temperature from the light. I mean, it's a lot of finagling, but yeah, you could hack something like that without <laughs> too much trouble, and it's just an old air conditioner that somebody might be throwing away on a street corner, and as long as you can pull out that temperature sensor and separate it from the air stream, you know, that's coming through the air conditioner, warm it, or even cool it, because a lot of these are heat pumps, they'll work both ways. Oh. Yeah, so then you can, uh, you can get lower temperatures, and this is the source of cooling that we're using in India, um, a little more sophisticated than that, a few more bells and whistles, but uh, yeah. What There's about... actually a product on the market called, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, it's called a CoolBot, about $300, and that does the same thing in, in a much more controlled fashion. But Ooh. yeah, so you can take a that device and put it on an old air conditioner and make it become a refrigerator. Oh, interesting. Yep. Yeah, what about how you store in terms of, should you put your your apples in plastic bags? Should you lay them out in boxes? Should they not be too close to each other? Are there any other tips that you can tell us? I think you're a better post-harvest person than I am. This is <laughs> a really good point. Um, apple fruits, you think of them as being kind of resistant to moisture loss, a little bit like a tomato fruit, let's say, but yeah, you give them a few weeks and they get a little bit wrinkly. There's almost no product that I know of that can stand more than about a 5% moisture loss. Um, and apple fruits are no different. So uh, some kind of a barrier is needed uh, to prevent the moisture loss. So plastic bags are a very good idea. Uh, they can have relatively large holes in them. If you, if you seal up the plastic bag, you may run into problems with too low oxygen or too high carbon dioxide in that plastic environment. But a plastic bag with some holes um, poked in it would keep most of the moisture inside and also keep the fruit in better shape. So I would suggest that. Some people will take fruit and they'll put them, you know, kind of in, uh, let's say, a straw or hay, and that tends to allow gas exchange but also keep the moisture in and it and prevents rotting and rotting from spreading from fruit to fruit. So there are, there are options like that, hmm. um, but the plastic bag is a good one, some kind of a barrier for moisture loss. And if we if we use a plastic bag, could we put ten or twelve or twenty apples inside? They won't affect each other. They shouldn't do. But the one caveat is, if you've got one fruit that decides to decay, um, you can get some really beautiful molds growing from one fruit to the next. Uh, They're stunning and they're wonderful to take a picture of, but you certainly wouldn't want to eat them. so if you were to do it in a perfect world, maybe you want to put a little bit of paper or something like, you know, like wrap each individual apple. And believe it or not, apple fruits going into storage, at least the very uh, high-value ones, were individually wrapped in years past. They would wrap them in an oil wrap, and it was for a different purpose as an antioxidant, but you would have a full storage 
uh, with each individual apple wrapped in a piece of paper. Mm. So if uh, commercial growers could have done it back then, uh, modern growers can do it. Um, you know, household growers can do it too. That's agreed. Yeah, a little bit of newspaper wrapped around the apple, but put them all in a plastic bag, and I think you'll find that they store pretty darn well. Oh, that's and amazing. You won't get that what we call nesting from with decay going from one fruit to the next. Yes, yes. Um, I'm. We've got to wrap up the show just in a couple of minutes. I just also wanted to say to Anthony, who wrote from Baltimore that I saw your email. Anthony was saying that the discussion has focused this previously on storage for commercial growers, but what about storage for small and home orchards? Storage in basements or in root cellars for those of us who have them. So Anthony, I hope that we answered your question. And now it is time to find out who won the book. Uh Uh-oh, Gary is scrounging around to Give me the, the, the thing so we can figure out who won the book. So this is a very lovely book, The Joy of Keeping a Root Cellar. And I have a whole bunch of little pieces of paper here. I'm going to open it up. Oh, my goodness. Janice B. from Wilmington, Delaware. You are the winner of a book called The Joy of Keeping a Root Cellar, Canning, Freezing, Drying, Smoking, and Preserving the Harvest. So, Janice, we are going to email you and ask for your details so that we can send you this really nice book. So, I wish, Randy, I wish you were here because I like it when the guests can pick the uh, winner, but sadly, you're far away. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I feel like I've learned a lot. I'm sure that there's so much more to learn, but um, it's given me a good, you know, big picture of what happens to the fruit uh, before we buy it in the supermarket. Well, Susan, it's been my pleasure to be on uh, on the program, and uh, honestly, I respond directly to folks as well via my email, bodry at msu.edu. Feel free to send me a note, question. Um, if I don't know, we have lots of extension personnel and other folks here at Michigan, uh, in Michigan, that can uh, potentially or hopefully answer the question. That's amazing. That's so helpful. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, and goodbye for now. All right. Susan, thank you so much. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Randy Beaudry, a professor at Michigan State University and an expert in developing storage protocols for apples, and I'm so happy he came on the show today. So the Urban Forestry Radio Show is just about over, and I hope you enjoyed it. I have lots more to share with you on my website at orchardpeople.com. So visit and you can check out the blogs and the videos and the quizzes and all sorts of archived episodes of this very podcast with lots of fruit tree care information and resources. If you want to up your game when it comes to fruit tree care skills, you might be interested in taking my online course, which is suitable for both beginner and intermediate level growers. You can find out all about it at orchardpeople.com slash workshops. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to digging into a new fruit tree care topic with you next month. Listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, 
you can visit orchardpeople.com slash podcast. This show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month. And each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees, or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Urban Fruit Trees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.